Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to today's program, Humanity at a Crossroads, New Insights into Technology Risk to Humans and the Planet. This program is being co-sponsored by the Commonwealth Club's Health and Medicine and Technology and Society member-led forums and has been co-organized along with a number of groups you'll hear about uh, in a moment. Humanity at a Crossroads is being led by Camilla Reese, Senior Policy Advisor, National Institute for Science, Law, and Public Policy in Washington, D.C. Camilla is author of The Wireless Elephant in the Room, editor of landmark policy papers including Reinventing Wires, The Future of Landlines and Networks, and Getting Smarter About the Smart Grid, both of which have presented, been presented here at the Commonwealth Club and has been a researcher, educator, producer, and activist on this topic for over a decade. Last fall, Camilla was awarded the prestigious Jonathan Foreman Award by American Academy of Environmental Medicine, its highest honor, an award usually given to physicians. Earlier, she received the 2018 Public Health Award by the Global Foundation for Integrative Medicine. So we're very much looking forward to today's program, and thank you for coming and enjoy the program. I now turn it over to, to Camilla Reese. Thank you very much, Bill, and thank you to everybody for coming. We're at a point where we need to be seriously reevaluating our relationship with technology, individually and as a society. Today, we're going to be reviewing the risks of, from the explosion of technology in our lives, including wireless technologies in our homes, neighborhoods, schools, and offices, as well as the problem of tech overuse and addiction. There's a wireless elephant in the room, and we're talking about devices and infrastructure that emit microwave radiation, from cell phones to routers, laptops, printers, tablets, portable phones, wireless baby monitors, wireless security systems, smart meters, antennas on buildings, on billboards, hidden in fake trees and in church steeples, um, placed in elevator shafts in tall modern buildings um, without informing residents, sometimes placed in apartment units themselves. And now, with the 4G, 5G antenna densification, radiating antennas are being placed on utility poles, lamp posts, street signs, and other municipal infrastructure. There are going to be millions of them. I'm also referring to wearable wireless technology like smart watches, smart infant monitoring pajamas, and if you can believe it, even radiating iPads in the neonatal intensive care units. And also microwave radiation emitting large home appliances and electronics that now harbor hidden antennas for the emerging Internet of Things. In all cases, there are safer, faster, more secure, and far more energy-efficient options for communication. And yet, the telecom industry continues to race forward in blanketing our lives in this radiation as if there is some intrinsic value in integrating us with our information. This despite decades of research showing harm, U.S. government research going back 80 years showing connection with cancers, neurological conditions, DNA damage, cognitive impairment, and much more. And despite the growing percentage of the population today experiencing electrosensitivity symptoms and tremendous uncertainty about the long-term consequences of chronic and cumulative exposures for humans, animals, and the ecosystem. When I started focusing on this issue over a decade ago, there were only 10 people in this field. Today, we have over 300 advocacy groups in the U.S. alone and growing. And they're increasingly coming together in solidarity, as are the EMF scientists. For example, in a recent EMF scientist appeal to the United Nations, a physician and scientist appeal to the European Union, 
and through an effort to raise global awareness of risks related to the intended launch of 50,000 new satellites um, um, that will transmit wireless from space. 50,000. Children, children too, hold on a second, children too are coming together to protest wireless. Here is a group of Irish students last week singing and protesting the cell tower at their school. Everyone is needed and the momentum is building. I'm grateful today for the support of non-EMF-related groups such as the American Academy of Environmental Medicine, Moms Across America, the California Health Coalition, and UCOT. UCOT stands for Unintended Consequences of Technology. It's a group of some of the brightest minds in the technology sector and venture investors in tech coming together to shine a light on the unintended consequences and looking for solutions right from within the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, we hope to see many other health, environmental, and business groups joining the ranks, coming together to seriously examine and derail this runaway train. The proliferation of wireless is a public health issue, but it's also a health freedom issue, where we are being deprived of the right to health, which is the foundation for a quality life. And it's a reflection of our increasing disconnection from nature and from the inherent balance and harmony and support therein. When we choose to metaphorically eat the apple in the Garden of Eden, obsessed with incessant stimuli, harming us in multiple ways, we lose our rootedness and our soul. We see it everywhere all around us, from these children in the museum on their cell phones to people, partners, families disconnected from one another online. And we see it in the, in the eyes of children who deserve more attention from adults who are addicted to their devices. And we see it in the health care costs and productivity. Health care costs have skyrocketed since the early 1990s when the antenna proliferation began, which is now 18% of our GDP. The fastest-growing illnesses since 1990 have all been linked to exposures to electromagnetic fields through a molecule called peroxynitrite. The telecommunications industry is obviously an extremely important part of our economy, and this is probably the most important reason government officials have turned a blind eye to the well-established risks. Here is um, Tom Wheeler, who former FCC chair, talking about 5G and its importance. Yes, 5G will connect the Internet of everything. If something can be connected, it will be connected in the 5G world. Hundreds of billions of microchips connected in products from pill bottles to plant waterers. Okay, so just to show, show the insanity. So it's very clear that we need to find the courage to face the reality of the health risks and the reality of the failure of our government. We must bring strong leadership together to begin a serious rethinking of modern telecommunications and to develop a strategy for infrastructure with the best interests of our people, the planet, and a sustainable economy in mind. Now, in terms of personal tech risks, which we have some control over, there are many, um, this is a complex issue, there are many aspects of risks. There's a programming designed to addict us, what we've heard a lot about in the news. There are the screen effects with, like lighting and flicker and other characteristics of newer monitors. There's the overstimulation occurring, the immersive nature of certain experiences, and the blurring between reality and virtual reality, multitasking effects and interactivity effects, effects related to the age technology use begins, and the kind of connection to the Internet, where it, whether it's a wireless or hardwired connection, which we'll hear a lot about today, 
and risks related to the increasing speed of our lives due to the technology and risks simply from the duration of use or what's called screen time. I'd like to put into perspective just how much of life people are spending online and thereby being affected by all of these factors. When you do the math, it's really quite astonishing. So various estimates suggest that young people spend between five and eight hours um, a day online, and sometimes they're as high as 12 hours a day. So let's take the low end of the range, five hours. That may not sound like a lot, but, you know, a little bit in the morning, through the day, in the evening. But five hours times 365 days a year is 1,825 hours. And if you divide that by, if you assume that there are 15 waking hours in the day and you're sleeping the other eight, other eight hours, that equates to over four months of one's waking life online. Four months. That's a third of one's of the year. So we have to be asking if this is how we want to be spending our lives and, and is this what we want for our children? It's encouraging to me that Stanford University's professor B.J. Fogg, who ran its persuasive design lab studying how technology can best addict us, is now working on ways to reduce screen time and has predicted a post-digital movement will emerge in 2020. But Google's Eric Schmidt has envisioned something very different. And he says there, he said there will be so many IP addresses, so many devices, sensors, things that you're wearing, things that you're interacting with, you won't even sense it. Integrating us with our information and eventually with robots appears to be the goal. So I'm sure that most Americans believe that computers um, and access to the internet should be safe, that our living environments should not be saturated in electromagnetic fields if they are harmful, that integrating us with, with information is a decidedly ill-considered direction. Integration is a good thing, but in an entirely different sense. From There's an important distinction between integration with technology and information and integration into the wholeness and the intelligence of the bigger, of the natural world uh, within ourselves and the ecosystem and universe around us. The wireless industry's drive to integrate us with technology and information, besides being unsafe from the radio frequency radiation, is counter to the teachings of most of the world's wisdom traditions, in that it fragments us, leading us away from wholeness instead of toward it. Intentionally addicting people to this way of life will necessarily take society on a path of steep decline, as we are already seeing, un- seeing unfolding. Now, with regard to antenna infrastructure, we are at a pivotal point right now where technology is becoming more invasive in our lives and more dangerous, and this situation is begging for our attention. Antennas are going up everywhere in the public's rights of ways, and local governments have um, limited rights to, um, to do anything about it. Electronics in our homes now have embedded antennas for the Internet of Things. We have a rapidly emerging surveillance society and a rogue surveillance capitalism not driven by meeting the market's needs, as Professor Soshana Zuboff of Harvard Business School has written about in her excellent book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future and the New Frontier of Power. 4G and 5G antennas are going to be using more dangerous, higher frequencies, and more more and more complex signaling characteristics used now in crowd control and military settings. To power all this wireless equipment requires dramatically higher energy usage when faster, safer, and more energy-efficient alternatives already exist. Technology is also becoming more immersive with virtual reality as well as invasive with implantable wireless technologies. 
And we have the audacity to permit 50,000 new Wi-Fi transmitting satellites in space, allegedly to facilitate a technologically interconnected world, while ironically, we are rapidly losing an understanding of our true interconnectedness. The world is magnificent and mysterious, and there is a lot to explore and experience. If we slow down and be present, instead of speeding up, turning over many of our cognitive faculties to machines, and even missing much of the blessed life we have been given. This is a... Um, uh, plants themselves emit frequencies, and I'm going to play for you the sounds of, the, of an aloe vera plant um, developed by Dr. Magda Havas, who's with us here in the audience. Where are you, Magda? There you go. Um, now, this I want you to really take this in. This is This is the sounds of nature, and then we're going to contrast it with... Um, with the sound of what your the sounds that the um, that your body hears from technology. This is the sound of the frequencies coming off a plant. Contrast. This is the sound of sulfur. This is what the sounds of the frequencies sound like if they were audible, sound like to our bodies. So we are at a fork in the road, a crossroads, and we are either going to affirm that we want the path that supports life and that expands our connection with the greater whole or continue on the current trajectory, thinking we can control and dominate nature and automate and micromanage lives at a great loss to us personally as well as to the, the, for the potential of the human species um, to rise into its, its own potential. Um, this, is, um, a, this is a cow. They're putting virtual reality headsets on a cow, and it's in Moscow. And it's um, in order to make the cow see more beautiful picked, uh, pasture and a, a sunny day. And I think it's, it's really emblematic of the insanity of our relationship to, with technology. We are, we are very sick and out of balance, and we need to return to the values that and we want to see at the core of our, of our world and recreate a world of health and happiness and love. And the present path that we are on is not going to get us there. So... Today, I want to um, end with uh, the question, why should we, in essence, be agreeing to be the collateral damage of the wireless industry's misguided values that are damaging humans, animals, and, the, and nature, and especially children, on an unprecedented scale for their commercial gain? Thank you. So today we have um, the next speaker is Dr. Carl Merritt of Dove Health Alliance, in a nonprofit foundation in Aptos, California, and he's senior research fellow of the National Institute of Science, Law, and Public Policy. He holds an MD degree, a master's in biomedical engineering, and a BS in electrical engineering. And in addition, earlier in his career, he worked in electromagnetic fields research in the Canadian military. 
Dr. Merritt's technical and medical qualifications make him uniquely capable of addressing both present-day concerns about the biological and health effects as well as questions about the new, more complex aspects of new generation 4G and 5G technologies. Um, He educates physicians on the biological impacts of communication technologies and serves on the advisory board of the Building Biology Institute, Training Institute for Architects, Engineers, Health Practitioners, and Environmental Consultants. Dr. Merritt, welcome. I'm going to find your slides. Well, good afternoon. I'm very grateful to be at the Commonwealth Club once again. And I want to tell you what I'm very concerned about, what's about to start happening in the next few years. Uh, primarily about the new anticipated, it's not yet really rolled out, and there's still time to stop it. So we're going to talk about 5G and, and other electromagnetic health hazards. We've known about this really since the 1960s. Uh, we knew that microwaves can cause hearing, what's called microwave hearing in the ears. We knew that it breached the blood-brain barrier, so that is protecting you against toxins getting into the brain. We knew about the Navy that, through Zori Glazer, published hundreds of papers that are available online about how the U.S. Navy knew there were problems. We knew it caused cataracts in the eyes at high enough uh, power density levels and so on and so forth. The Bioinitiative group has shown over thousands of papers that are latest update in 2013. And all our exposure Uh, safety so-called standards or guidelines are all based only on a six-minute heating effect, not over long-term exposure that we're all living with today. So what is this 5G? It stands for fifth generation, but what's really being rolled out right now is 4G antennas, which are already taking some of the characteristics I'll be describing of uh, later to be 5G. We knew about 1G was analog. That was essentially just for voice communication. By the time you got the flip phone and 2G, it was voice and texts. After that was 3G. You could start browsing the Internet, and it used, uh, instead of GSM, UMTS type of signal transmission, a different modulation pattern. By the time we had 4G, which is called long-term evolution, ironically a very interesting name, We started to have videos being able to be downloaded, and now we're looking at 5G, which is essentially for the machine age. It's for the machines talking to each other, and they promise us driverless cars and videos in a second, but that is the hype or the sell. What it's really doing is basically mechanizing all of the world. When we start looking at the health effects, these are the safety guidelines that are basically on the top line there, and... um, Sometimes we get this thing not working, but you can see them on the top line. And you can see what started to happen from the 50s to the 80s to 2010. We're starting to approach the safety guidelines that are set by governing bodies that have a lot of ties to the industry. And eventually we'll start having problems around that. When you look at the German company Rode and Schwartz, um, and I'm from Europe originally, they say this isn't just a new generation. This is a paradigm shift. And when a technology company that's involved in military and industrial research is saying that, you've got to pay attention. This has been 
uh, years in the making, as you can see from this slide. So what are you mostly being exposed to? Well, the majority of the exposure each of you have are from cell phone radiation or cordless decked telephones. You can control that to some degree, how long you use it, how close it's to the body. All of these things affect the amount of uh, non-thermal radiation typically you get. Although there's a lawsuit now against Apple because the Chicago Tribune studied whether or not the cell phones from Apple were safe, and they actually exceeded our exposure standards when they were tested in the way people use them, not a certain distance away from the body. Uh, Far-field devices, on the other hand, are things like your Wi-Fi routers, your cell phone towers, communications out of the smart meters in your home, and now we're adding all these satellites. So when we differentiate between them, the near-field devices over here uh, on the right, we measure that in how much energy they transmit into the body and how much the body absorbs. It's called the specific absorption rate. Uh, contrast that with the power density or how much energy is floating through the air from these devices. And that drops off at the square of the distance, except with 5G, that doesn't apply so much anymore because we're going to start targeting you uh, directly with beams like laser beams, which I'll show you in a minute. So again, the safety guidelines we have in place are for six minutes of exposure and not long-term use. Now, I'm not going to talk much about cell phones, just to give you a brief background. Mark DeHavis has done a great job at the Environmental Health Trust to really show what the issues are when you carry these cell phones in women in their bras. Young women who have no previous risk for breast cancer get tumors right where the, the four antennas of the iPhone are. Uh, you can see those different frequencies here. Uh, pregnant women are very vulnerable. Children are very vulnerable. We have increasing rates of brain cancer and so forth. Now, what's very concerning is how much the... Uh, Children in America are getting these phones. Uh, you can see by age 15 to 16, 76% in one study have all cell phones. Three-quarter of all kids are instrumented. In Europe, it's a little bit lower. And when we look at what ages they get them at, you can see a steady increase in 12 to 17-year-olds over time. The majority get their phones first uh, between age 10 and age 15. Only 10% are left to catch up by age 16. Some start as early as 5 to 7. Now, this is worrisome because children, the radiation penetrates, as you can see on the left, in a 5-year-old child much deeper into the brain. And women who have an embryo, who are pregnant, they get even more exposed and using an iPad or other wireless device on the belly of a pregnant woman should be seen as criminal. Americans are now using their mobile devices more than watching TV. The crossover happened this year in 2019. And if you start looking at where brain tumor takes place, you have to differentiate which parts of the brain absorb it the most. The temporal lobe on the side here where you hold the phone and the frontal lobe, which is your uh, area of the brain that keeps you from having impulse control, are the most affected, and we'll hear a minute from Dr. Kadera is a lot more about that. And that's where the brain tumors occur. If you look at a British study, if you look at the red line, those are the frontal and temporal lobe tumors. The green line is all other 
brain tumors or mixing them together. So if doctors say, well, there hasn't been an increase, they're not looking at the right data. If you look at Sweden, the blue line here represents the cell phone use minutes that are increasing year after year from about 1999 to 2013. And because cancer has a 10-year or more latency before it manifests, you start didn't see the effects right away, but the red line you can see starting at about 2003, we started to see a rise in Sweden. And in Norway, when they project this out to, to uh, in the future, looking at a trend line analysis, they say by 2080, there'll be a 25-fold increase in brain tumors. So I started looking at some of the data uh, that's from our uh, central brain trust registry, which is what we use to study central nervous system tumors and brain tumors. And even though the glioblastoma, the really negative uh, tumors, have only increased by, say, 11% from 1998, to 2012, other tumors like pituitary tumors, which are in the master gland in your head, have increased by over 300%. And when you look at where they occur, you can see they, of course, occur late in life, but every five-year interval, when you plot them on top, it's increasing. Other tumors that get affected from especially cell phone radiation are in the ear, acoustic neuromas, in the product gland, the... Uh, salivary gland in your cheeks and your thyroid that's been really increasing everywhere and occasionally breast tumor. And when the U.S. government studied this with the U.S. National Toxicology Program, they said there's clear evidence now that mobile phones cause cancer, specifically heart cancer, which is very rare. Uh, This was in rats and mice, as well as brain and adrenal gland cancers. So now let's really talk about cell towers, because this is what's starting to come. Now, we've had these, this is a cell tower map for the United States. As of latest count, from what I could find, there's about 123,000 cell phone towers in the United States, with two carriers having most of the data. And the people who live close proximity to these towers, this is what they complain of, fatigue, headache, difficulty concentrating, memory loss, sleep problems, uh, feeling of discomfort, depression, and on and on. The closer you are to the cell tower, the more affected you become. And in one place in Southern California, it was interesting, between two cell phones, uh, towers, 40 feet apart, all the bees, they were started falling to the ground and dying. If you look at plants, there's a study from Romania. They looked at what the normal control of parsley plants are. In the middle, you see from 2G cell phone uh, irradiation at a normal sort of standard exposure level. The cells don't form very well uh, of the parsley plant. And if you look at wireless, just from a standard Wi-Fi router, the plants on the right also seem very misshapen in terms of their cell structure. And we're starting to see now when you expose um, bacteria in this one study in 2017 uh, to uh, wireless radiation, they start being resistant to antibiotics. Now, for medical doctors, this would be a really big issue. We suddenly don't have ability to give antibiotics that don't work because of the current potential lack of efficacy. So we already heard about Tom 
uh, Wheeler in 2016, he basically said the telecom industry should head all the standards. We should not have government stand in the way. We need 800,000 antennas by 2025, is what he talked about in his talk. And just to put that in perspective, if you look at the current cell towers we have, these so-called small cell facilities that you had just seen in Camilla's introduction, they're going to be put all the lampposts and utility posts. That's six times more than we've laid out in the last several decades that we've installed in the last several decades. So Norm Ulster from Harvard, you can download this book for free, said, look, the FCC is a captured agency. It's captured by the industry, and it's like a rotating kind of a rotating door where people from the industry go into the government and then come back out, go back into the industry. And when we start looking at these 5G at higher frequencies, they're going to start putting these antennas from the different carriers, which are shown in different colors. Here's a neighborhood picture, what's anticipated, where all the dots, several houses down, there'll be another antenna because different carriers will need different antennas. So this is what they look like. You've seen that just before. Some of these antennas may be as frequent as every 300 feet. And they basically could lay cable or fiber optics to your house, but this is much cheaper. So the last, you might say, several hundred feet are going to be through wireless radiation of the 5G kind. And if you look at Huntington Beach, they will disguise them in so-called fusion poles, these are where the antennas are in the top and the radio base are in the bottom, and then it looks like a nice light bulb, like a live street light, rather. So what's unique about 5G? Well, it uses different technologies that are now being incorporated into 4G, and what you need to, about, to know about it is that it uses beamforming, phased array type of antennas, massive input and output with multiple antennas, and in the future, higher frequency waves that we haven't even used before. Now, in 2018, in Health Physics, which is really a biophysics journal, they actually started worrying about this, and even the conventional physics, and they said, because 5G, like so many wireless technologies, are transmitted in bursts, it can lead to tissue heating, which, of course, what they're concerned about, and uh, it may have the difference between the average which is what you use to measure heating, the integration of all the pulses, versus the peak pulses be as high as 1,000 to 1. And therefore, they said, we should really start thinking about exposure standards. First time. Now, 4G is now called uh, LTE Advanced Pro, and you can see from this industry slide, it's a stepping stone to 5G, and new 4G is being installed to be upgraded later to these newer antennas. So... People want more data. They say, well, we need this because everybody wants more data speeds. They want more bandwidth. That's how much information you can funnel into a phone. And so as of 2016, they opened up the 28 gigahertz, 37 gigahertz bands, 39, 64, 71 gigahertz. Now, these waves become smaller and smaller. So you can see that in this slide whereas 4G was going up to about 2,700 megahertz or 2.7 gigahertz. 5G will go up to 60 gigahertz or more, and the waves get increasingly smaller. 
the wavelength between them, as you can see in the slide. Now, they don't penetrate into the building as well. Uh, foliage and leaves and trees are in the way, so they start cutting down trees. They're trying to make sure everybody can get their signal all the time. But even more worrisome are antennas in there that basically will track you, like a radar system tracks an object in space or in the air. These are what's called phased array antennas. They are done in order to keep a better signal from the tower to your device. And this is how they're going to start tracking things. It's essentially like a surveillance system. And um, I'll show you a simple example of this. Uh, you can find this online. Uh, the Radwin 5000 jet beam forming technology, as they call it, which has had no health studies, will be inside these innocuous-looking boxes on poles, and they will start beaming the microwave radiation directly in your direction. They do that because the interference, which is shown in yellow here, may be in the way and not giving you good reception, so they will target the beam right to your device. And as you keep moving down the street or in your car, that beam will keep tracking you. So it's essentially like a laser beam tracking you along. But not only that, most of the radiation in this case um, is this main beam here. Uh, but there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of side lobes. Uh, this is typical when you uh, start having this beam forming technology, and these side lobes will hit other people. Uh, and it's quite different than the spherical radiation that comes off a sector antenna that we see on the poles now. This is a whole new uh, what they call a paradigm shift in technology. So if you consider that a light bulb radiates incoherent radiation frequencies in all different directions and at different wavelengths, as opposed to a laser beam shown on the right, the laser beam has all the waves in phase. That's called coherent radiation. And this is essentially when that starts interacting with your tissues, there are very many unforeseen consequences. Now, this is all because of... Good old money, because the telecom industry says in 2024 there will be 9 billion mobile subscriptions, 22 billion Internet of Things connection, 1.9 billion 5G subscriptions, and 45% of the population will be covered by 5G. And here is the graph showing from 2019 where we're still at the beginning and we still have a choice to where we'll end up in five years. Now, don't forget that the insurance companies like Lloyd's of London or Swiss RE won't reinsure any telecom company, no matter who they are, for health effects. They've known about these things, and they say, we're not touching this with a 10-foot pole. Okay? Now, here's our Mr. Tesla, Elon Musk, who also owns SpaceX, and they have the plan to create what we, they call the Starlink system. This is uh, how all these satellites are launched uh, in May of this year. They're all lined up to go into space. On the right top, you see SpaceIn's planned Starlink network, and it'll be orbiting around the moon. They're proposing 42,000 satellites, but Amazon is in the game and many other companies. So, yes, the 50,000 or more satellites may be very much a real estimate. Uh, the day after these were launched, 
uh, a Dutch astronomer actually showed them in space, and astronomers are starting to be worried now because there's going to be so much light and radiation coming from them. Uh, one of the concerns they have is that we can't use the 24 gigahertz band anymore to study weather patterns in terms of uh, moisture in the atmosphere. So this is a real concern. Uh, but the astronomers are also seeing there's so much brightness we can't do astronomy as well. And when you consider, if you see the picture on the right, there's 100 million bits of space junk floating around. 95% isn't doing anything. It's being tracked by NASA and so on. You know, then there may even be danger of collisions. So when Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut asked about the industry in February of this year, what do you think? Have you done any studies? What's the health impact? They basically said, no, we haven't done any studies at all. It's all considered to be safe. So he said, so we're essentially flying blind here on health and safety. And this is exactly my concern. So we live in houses where your toaster and your uh, medicine bottle and your fridge will all be interconnected with 5G. And scientists, of course, as you've just heard from Camilla, 41 countries, 261 scientists said, look, this is insanity. We've got to start looking at this, studying this. Okay, and so we have other groups doing that. Joel Moskovich from UC Berkeley says this is a massive experiment on humanity. The International Society for the Doctors for the Environment said the same thing. It would be unethical to ignore the available evidence on health damages. So what we really need is the precautionary principle, which says if you know that something is possibly causing a problem, you should slow down and evaluate it. And this is what Belgium has done. And this year they said, look, this is considered too, be high, too high for our radiation standards, and their standards are maybe 100 times lower than what the U.S. has. And they said, we don't want to have 5G right now. So, again, everything is based on heating of tissue, as you can see here, but really you have to start thinking of this radiation when it's targeted to you in a certain beam, more like tuning forks radiating together, so it can affect your body in a novel way, more by resonance principles. And, of course, what's what you're vulnerable to is the brain, thyroid, heart, uh, reproductive system, oxidative damage, cancer potentially, and so forth. And so what's happening now already, from 1989 to 2010, and that's almost 10 years ago now, they found that uh, people are dying in unprecedented numbers from neurological and neurodegenerative diseases, uh, more than fivefold in women over 75, more than uh, almost three times as much as in men. And, you know... These are the kind of conditions they die from, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, panic disorder, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and so forth. And when Gunnar Heuser, who was at UCLA at the Brain Research Institute, studied firemen who were having trouble uh, answering 911 calls when he did functional MRI studies on these people, and you can see the abnormalities in the brain there. He said they basically had toxic encephalopathy, and since then, last year, they tried to pass the uh, California SB 649 bill to, to roll this out that Governor Brown vetoed, uh, and they allowed the firemen not to have antennas on the firehouses because they knew this was a problem. So where are we dying from? Neurological diseases. Here's a map of North America, all the industrialized country, Europe, Australia. 
And I wanted to just share this with you. Rudolf Steiner already said in 1923, this life of men in the midst of electricity, notably radiant electricity, will present presently affect them in such a way they will no longer be able to understand the news which they receive so rapidly. The effect is to damp down their intelligence. So what some of the toxic effects on this? Um, well, the biological effects include oxidation, which is sort of rusting of your tissue, too many free radicals, DNA damage, mitochondrial damage, uh, heat shock proteins, which are uh, stress uh, cries from the cell, and so on and so forth. So when you look at just oxidative stress, this is you know things that tear apart membranes, and it's not a good thing. Uh, Looking at 80 papers in a research review, 92.5% of all the papers all showed significant effects from microwave radiation. And it's especially targeting uh, the mitochondria, uh, which are the little powerhouses of the cell. They're very uh, rich in the eggs of women, uh, in, in your muscles, in your brain, and all the branches called dendrites of the brain and so forth. And so you can start understanding these electromagnetic effects have all these effects that people complain about, fatigue, headaches, sleep disturbances, low melatonin, neurobehavioral effects, DNA effects, and so forth. So we now know that this is a type 2B carcinogen by the World Health Organization, which is a possible carcinogen. So it affects your DNA, causes single and double cell strand breaks, depending on how the studies are done. And you have to remember you have crystals in your brain that are called magnetite. They're an iron oxide, and they directly absorb microwaves. They are also why you have a magnetic sense, which we've mostly lost in our modern world. And uh, there's about 100 million crystals for for the brain uh, membranes, the dura and so forth. In addition, we have in our cells these different channels that are calcium channels, voltage-gated, so they're responsive to peak pulses of voltage, and it's the peaking, the signal transduction, which are getting faster and faster, that are triggering this. And calcium causes the cell to start triggering, like a brain cell or a muscle contraction and so on. Now, uh, finally, I want to just mention something about how many people are getting electromagnetically sensitive. We call it EHS, or electromagnetic hypersensitivity syndrome. It's estimated to be between 3 and 8% of the population. That's still small enough, and these are the canary in the coal mine, as it were. These are their symptoms. They have all the things we said was happening close to cell towers, fatigue, headaches, depression, memory loss, you know, heart problems, sleep disturbances, uh, difficulty concentrating. And we see this in young people, and you think, well, they're just not sleeping enough or whatever. But we have to start putting it into the larger context. And Professor Dominique Belpom in Paris, who is especially interested and has studied these people, has really shown that these people have changes in the blood flow to the brain. He says that electrical hypersensitivity and multiple chemical sensitivity are almost uh, the same. Uh, They have very similar characteristics. We can now study it with modern medicine, and this should be an accepted medical condition if doctors and researchers and the regulators were really interested in it because we have data like histamine responses. We have different uh, cell and immunological markers that these people have. These are not 
tinfoil hat people who are just malingerous and they get a psychiatric diagnosis. These are real sick people, and he estimates that 35% of the population have a milder form of this, but this 3 to 5% are the real ones who can't function. I have clients that have moved out of Silicon Valley, just couldn't live here anymore because the level of radiation, and San Francisco is especially bad. So when we look at blood flow, at the top is sort of the graphs of different regions of the brain. That's a normal blood flow picture. These people have the bottom picture. They have low uh, flow through their brain. And finally, I just want to say something about water, the element of life, because we are mostly made of water. We're 60% water, and most of the molecules in our body we're going to hear more about in a minute are water. And this water in your cell is quite different than what you're led to believe. It's basically a coherent water that responds to quantum properties, and that's analogous, if you look at this picture on the right, a school of fish all swimming together. They have a certain coherence. They flow together. And that's how the structured water in your cells is. It's like having a very sensitive radio receiver that can respond to everything. So here's one picture from Germany where they actually look at water and they crystallize it and it has these patterns that are like a snowflake, 60 degree angle, but when you take this water and you put it next to a cell phone or a cell phone mast or a tower uh, on a water tower and you take the water, then it crystallizes in these right angle patterns so you can see the water structure has been changed. Finally, um, Blue Cross and Blue Shield this year came out with a report on studying millennials. You can see the reference here. Uh, This was in April of this year. And they're saying, look, kids born between 1981 and 1996, you know, start having illnesses earlier and earlier, primarily depression, hyperactivity, diabetes. This used to occur in people when they're 50s and 60s. Now it's happening at age 27, and the curve goes down fairly steeply. So they were worried about the healthcare costs of that. And here you see they call them now the I generation by some. There was a... um, program, you can get it still from 60 minutes with a 99 cent prescription per month. You can look at the December, I think it was the ninth um, program, and they said the average kid spends four and a half hours, which is what we just heard, on their cell phones a day, checking for social media every 15 minutes, sleeping with the phone under their pillows, and so on. Very dangerous. And when we looked at kids, and this is a $300 million NIH study now because they're worried about screen time, they found kids who had used the phone seven hours a day or more, when they looked at their brain cortex, is actually starting to shrink like Alzheimer's patients. So that's the news and the question and answer. We'll talk about some of the solution. I really thank you for your attention. <laughs> Um, the next speaker is Dr. Nicholas Cardaris. He's an internationally renowned expert on, in addiction, mental health, and impacts of the digital age. He's the author of the best-selling book, Glow Kids, How Screen Addiction is Hijacking Our Kids and How to Break the Trance, the seminal book on the clinical, neurological, and sociological impacts of tech addiction, now available in 10 languages. 
He's founder of Omega Recovery in Austin, Texas, Maui Recovery in Hawaii, and also founder of the recently formed National Institute of Digital Health. Dr. Cardaris has worked with over 2,000 teens and young people over the past 20 years. He has been an active, he's been advocating that screen addiction be recognized as a clinical disorder akin to substance addiction, and he's developed the most comprehensive treatment protocols to treat this emerging global epidemic. A former clinical professor at Stony Brook Medicine, where he specialized in teaching the neurophysiology, psychopathology, and the treatment of addiction. Um, he has also taught neuropsychology as well as philosophy at the doctoral level and has worked closely in developing clinical protocols with Dr. Howard Schaefer of Harvard Medical School, director of its division of addiction. Today, Dr. Cardaris is increasingly focused on technology's impact on humanity as a whole, including under-recognized biological, psychological, emotional, and developmental effects. Please welcome Dr. Nicholas Cardaris. Thank you, Camille. It's great to be here, and I'm glad that everybody, we have a strong turnout tonight. Um, this is an important topic, and it's, I can't really under, I can't really undersell how important this is. We're at a pivotal crossroads at our, as a species, as a society, and, and I think we've all been asleep at the switch, or at least a large number of us have been asleep at the switch, really underappreciating some of these impacts. And I came to this dance about 10, 11 years ago when I started seeing clinical impacts. Now, you've heard uh, from Carl some of the uh, neurological and some of the um, radiation effects. I started seeing young people that were shifting, uh, that they were really getting impacted in a pretty profound clinical way, increased depression rates, anxiety rates, addictive disorders. Um, we saw a society on fire, and what was, what was troubling to me was that we're on fire and we don't even realize it. Um, I, I think of the, the parable of the frog in the water. The water's getting hotter. The water's boiling. We're going to die soon. But we don't realize it. And in fact, we're addicted to the water. And in fact, we're playing Candy Crush while the water's boiling. And in fact, we're distracted while we're dying. And that's sort of what's happened. We're really in this really toxic uh, environment right now, both clinically, neurologically, physiologically, and we're really under-aware of it because the shiny bauble has kept us somewhat um, smitten by it. We've been in love with our gadgets, and, and I give you Exhibit A. And Exhibit A is a phenomenal device. I can't, I don't think any of us can really underestimate as a technological advancement how amazing this device is. You know, in the palm of our hands, we have a portal to all the wisdom in the world, essentially, uh, more wisdom than the Library of Alexandria we can access in the palm of our hands. So as a piece of technology, it's a phenomenal advancement. But like Thoreau had said 150 years ago, we've become the tool of our tools. There's wonderful tools, but now the tools own us. And, and you know, fire is wonderful when we invented fire, but is the fire now consuming us? And that's what we really have to start looking at because rather than looking down and saying, gee, isn't this neat, and really being distracted uh, and understanding how our distraction and our habituation to our devices is not by accident. It's not a happy accident that we're, most of us have some level of screen uh, habituation. Um, by a show of hands out of curiosity, 
How many of you um, get a little bit antsy when your phone battery runs low? How many of you get a little bit squirrely when you can't have your phone on, even for this lecture today? How many of you felt a little bit squirrely that, uh, all right, if you, some of you may not feel free to admit it, that's okay, we won't, we won't judge. And, and most of us in this room are, are of a certain age with a certain level of neurological development, and it's impacted us. It's impacted how we are as a species, how we socialize, how compulsive and impulsive we are. And we have a very fully developed prefrontal cortex, which is our executive functioning, which controls our impulsivity. We're not, I mean, I don't see anybody in here, we're not 16 or 17, where their frontal cortex is still much more impacted by their, uh, by different impacts. So this, this, the squirreliness that we have, this, this uh, irrational fear that our battery is running out, it's called nomophobia. It's an actual disorder that they've begun to treat. And you can see it up there. It's this feeling that we get. And it can be somewhat humorous, but now how, did, how did this all happen? How did, how did screen time, how did technology begin to consume us? And we have to understand that there were certain primal drives that technology really taps into. Uh, you know, and so we talk, number one, we talk about the need for social connection. We are hardwired social animals. The tribe survives. And so it's in our genetic hardwiring to have social connection. And so it seems that things like social media, which should have been like chocolate and peanut butter, social media to a social species, should have been a wonderful thing. But we've seen that social media really hijacks the social need and really gives it something, doesn't really give us genuine social connection in the way that we need it. They've done studies that show that for us to have a meaningful social interaction, we have to maintain eye contact at least 70% of the time. And that we're, if we're interacting digitally, that's not really feeding the soul and the, and the psychological, emotional needs that we have as a social species but it's honey to our social needs. It feels like it's feeding our need to socialize. Um, that group on the lower left, that's the first social network. Um, and, and they were staying together because the tribe, again, survived against different adversaries or different adversity. The second uh, drive that technology hijacks is our need to experience the new. Neophilia. Neophilia is the love of the new. And it's, again, an evolutionary adaptation. We are curious beings, and our species is profoundly curious, and it kept us alive. We discovered things like fire and exploration and tool-making. So we're hardwired to see what's over there. And, and curiosity can kill the cat, as they say. And in our case, neophilia helped us discover fire, and it also is what drives our tendency to open up our next text or our next email message or to open up what's under the Christmas tree, or it's this profound sense that we have to see what's over the horizon. And the third part that we talk about is our need for archetypal experiences. Now, Carl Jung talked about this at length, but we do seem to have a cross-cultural need for meaning and purpose and for mythological um, The hero's journey is one of the classic hero's journeys. And for those of you who have children who are gamers, almost every video game today is is a hijacking of the hero's journey. It taps into this psychological need that many young people in particular have to, um, to undergo a quest, to overcome obstacles, to feel empowered, to get to the other side of these adversities, to, what the Greeks call to develop apotheoses. So these are some primal needs that technology gift wraps for us and makes very compelling for us. Um, 
But there were people that were prescient about the dark side of technology uh, as far back. Well, we've heard about Thoreau and we also heard about Steiner. But Dr. Neil Postman at NYU back in the mid-1980s wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he warned about digital. He warned about screen time. Back then, it was television. And if you think about 1985 television, we're, we're talking Dynasty and Magnum P.I. and things that feel almost innocent uh, by today's standards of digital. But he felt that digital media was going to change our brains, was going to change the way we think, was going to change the way that our brain operates, because reading Reading content versus uh, visual media, uh, we, we absorb it differently. There's a critically interpretive process. There's a dialectic that happens when we read that doesn't happen when we, get, when we consume visual imagery. And he was concerned, Dr. Postman was concerned back in mid-1980s about what's going to happen to us if we become a visual versus a reading culture, which, by the way, is what's happening. And he also analogized screen time as uh, SOMA back from the brave new world, that we were going to become sort of uninformed, mindless blobs just wanting to be visually entertained. Very prescient for the Netflix binge-watching or anything that's happening today, but it's this idea that we're just going to be seduced by the visual. Um, and so it's this idea that technology two steps, uh, one step forward and humanity two steps backwards. We know that our over-reliance on technology does adversely impact our own humanity. We know that a reliance on tech, you know, if we, uh, if we outsource things to technology, we regress. Um, so this thing, uh, by a show of hands, how many of you can recite, if you were asked, 10 phone numbers today? I'm not going to quiz all of you, but you all know 10 phone numbers? All right. Normally, when I do some of my presentations, you know, it's usually less than a quarter of the room can still remember 10 phone numbers. Um, we've outsourced memory to our smartphones. Our smartphones now have outsourced our need to remember things. People no longer need to learn how to use a map because they have GPS. We don't learn. Uh, we don't need to use our memory. People, uh, for example, it's the idea when you give a child a calculator, they're Forget their multiplication tables. Um, so our, an over-reliance on technology has an atrophying effect on our own innate abilities. And in fact, they've done studies where um, at the University College of London, they did an ex uh, it was an interesting experiment because it was this idea that memory develops throughout lifetime. Even though our prefrontal cortex tends to stop developing at about 23 or 24, memory through the hippocampus keeps developing through our 50s. And it's kind of a use it or lose, lose it uh, mentality. The more we use our memory, the stronger of a muscle it becomes. And in London, uh, there's a famous uh, test that cabbies have to take called the, the knowledge. And it's considered one of the most difficult tests on the planet. Uh, makes the MCATs look easy by some people's analysis. But the knowledge is a test that cabbies have to take where they have to memorize over 10,000 labyrinthine streets in London. And it takes several years of memory. And what they did is they did a brain imaging study where they measured the brains and especially, excuse me, specifically the hippocampus of these aspiring London cab drivers. And then they did an MRI three years after rigorous memorization for this exam. And they found that the hippocampus doubled in size for those who passed the exam. So these were 30, 40, 50 year olds who were actually growing their hippocampus by using it. And so it's, it's, it's a study that reminds us that we need to use our brains. 
We need to use our memories. We need to use our mental faculties or else they begin to atrophy. Much more significantly impacting developmentally to children who are developmentally much more fragile, who are developing certain skill sets. So um, we've heard before about some of the millennial impacts. Uh, millennials are not well. And what I'm here to really shout from the rooftops, if I can, is we are on fire psychiatrically as a species right now. Uh, the CDC has termed them diseases of despair, but we have suicide, overdoses, and chronic alcoholism killed over 200,000 people last year. And, and I and several others have connected certain dots with why, and primarily a lot of these uh, deaths have been to people 35 and under. Why are young people killing themselves in record numbers? Suicides are at record numbers, by the way. So we had over 40,000 suicides last year. We had over 70,000 overdoses. What's happening? Why are young people dying at record levels to the point that for the first time, the average age of mortality in 100 years has gone down in America? We were getting older as a society since 1918. In 1918, we had dipped a little bit because of the influenza pandemic. But now, because of uh, a psychiatrically on fire population, we're dying. And what we have to look at is what's driving some of these psychiatric disorders where millennials and Generation Z, uh, teenage adolescent females, are committing suicide at double the rates that they were 10 years ago. What's driving that? So, um, as I mentioned, the uh, statistic, one statistic on the slide that I think we need to drill down to is um, the bottom slide, and it talks about teens' use of electronic devices for at least five hours daily is more than doubled. Now, those teens were 70% more likely to have suicidal thoughts or actions than those who reported an hour of daily use. So I want, I want you all to think about that. One hour of screen time for teenagers versus five hours. And five hours of screen time led to 70 not seven, 70% higher rates of suicidality or suicidal actions. What about staring at a screen is making people want to kill themselves? Is it the content? Is it the isolation? Is it both? Is it something else? Because something about that experience is not healthy, and it's not only not healthy, it's killing us. And we're, many of us are too busy watching Netflix to even care. So that's sort of the, uh, that's the takeaway. So, you know, again, how did we get here? Back in 1996, you had this Newsweek cover story of, uh, it's kind of a Norman Rockwell picture of a young girl with her laptop, and it's, can the PC make a student, make a kid, make your kid a better student? She's smiling, the bit of radiation's on her lap, she seems happy, all looks good. What can go wrong? And then 16 years later, there was a very different cover story with Newsweek. I crazy. The data was in. Kids were going nuts. Now, I've worked with over 2,000 kids. I've had kids be psychiatrically hospitalized with video game psychosis. I've had kids try to kill themselves when the devices were taken away. I've had kids attack their parents and families in homicidal rages. I've testified in different court cases about the psychiatric impacts of screen time. And these are not things that were happening 15 years ago. And so kids were going insane. Things were happening. And the, one of the 
phenomenons that have come out of this is we talk about information overload. Uh, there's, there's a couple of things that also happen to all of us. We have too much information coming at us too quickly, too often, too fast, we're, and then we're underslept. We're sleep deprived. So information overload and sleep deprivation do not, uh, there's not very good outcomes that come from that. And in fact, there have been quite a few psychotic episodes that have happened. I won't go into some of the details, but there have been quite a few high-profile psychotic episodes of underslept people in screen time, uh, things that wouldn't have happened if they weren't bombarded by imagery and if they had gotten uh, more regulated sleep. So, you know, you've all seen this tribe. It's young people, head down, screen-obsessed, and, and it's a mental health epidemic. And we have young people who are essentially saying, help. Because let's face it, we're the ones who have created the society. The adults in the room have been too busy playing Candy Crush to realize. And, and one of the things that I talk about is, I think a mistake that people of my, I'm 55, people that my generation or maybe our generation have made is we've conflated television with modern screens. And so those of, I grew up on television, um, I think it was a critical fatal flaw or fatal mistake that we've made because modern screens are different than television in two very fundamental ways. So they're much more impactful psychiatrically and psychologically because of the immersive and interactive aspect. So when we watched television back in uh, 1970, when I was watching Starsky and Hutch, um, I was a passive viewer to the screen. It was a passive viewing experience. Now young people are in the experience it's an interactive, immersive experience, which is very different than a passive experience. So it's profoundly much more impactful. And they're ubiquitous. Uh, I couldn't carry around that black and white TV set in my back pocket. Now it's, it's ubiquitous, and it's immersive, and it's there all the time. So um, how did we become, how did children become screen kids? And sociologically, we could look at it, and some sociologists have pointed back to, you know, let's call it the helicopter parenting movement. Uh, there was a very high-profile case in New York, uh, and I remember having been raised in New York, Eitan Pates, the, dis the disappearance of Eitan Pates. Not the first abducted child, but the, but the first high-profile national news media abducted child. And in fact, by FBI statistics, this is the safest time for child, uh, child abductions are at lowest by FBI statistics. It was much more dangerous being a child in the early part of the 20th century than it is now. But what happened with Eitan Pates was the advent of the 24-7 news cycle. And now, you know, there's an old saying in the news industry, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, so now you had 24-7 news stations that needed content to keep viewers' eyes glued, and they needed... Uh, essentially to have stories that got parents uh, frightened, quite honestly. So now you had frightened parents who were less inclined to let their children become outdoor kids anymore. And so the advent of the indoor child was unleashed. And back then, the child to the left is staring at a TV set, and the indoor child morphed from a television child to a computer child with uh, the accompanying clinical impacts that I've briefly kind of gone over. The main categories of clinical Im impacts have been addiction, attentional disorders, increased aggression, anxiety and depression, uh, mood disorders, and psychosis. So this idea that screen time can be habit-forming, addicting, um, 
is not new. I wrote an article for the New York Post called Digital Heroin a few years ago that got a lot of attention because at the time it seemed to be a shocking proposition that screens can be habit-forming. Now it's relatively accepted, but back then it was somewhat shocking. But, you know, we had people like uh, Peter Weibrow calling it electronic cocaine. Peter Weibrow was at uh, UCLA, head of neuroscience. My friend Andrew Doan, who works for the Pentagon, he called it digital pharmakia, the Greek word for uh, drugs. And Chinese researchers have been calling it digital, uh, I'm sorry, electronic heroin for years now. So just so we understand a little bit of the, the mechanics of how something becomes habit-forming, we know that the main neurotransmitter for addiction is dopamine. Dopamine is the driver of habit-forming behavior. And if something, the more dopamine something tends to release, the more potential for habituation we have. So there was a famous article in the NIH, why are we addicted to heroin and not broccoli? Um, now, there might be some broccoli addicts. I, I'm not sure. I haven't encountered any. But typically, you don't see somebody uh, attacking their parents or selling their possessions to buy broccoli. Typically, broccoli does not drive people to such kinds of behaviors. And what we do associate it with is how much dopamine does something elicit? And it's really an intersection of dopamine and adrenaline that drives the addictive. Well, technically, it's the mesolimbic dopamine reward loop. There's a reward neurofeedback loop that happens. So something tickles my dopamine, it feels good, more. And I'd like to re-experience that. Now, some people are predisposed towards that uh, habituated uh, people, there's been some research. There's different ideological theories about who is an addict and who has p the potential to have addictive behavior. I won't get into those theories. Some of them are genetic. Some of them are so, uh, some of them are um, social learning theory. There's um, there's over 15 dominant theories of why people are addicts. But we know that if you are, it's about 10 percent of the population that has a predisposition towards addiction. If you tickle the dopamine receptors to that 10 percent of the population, they're going to potentially form a, a habituated addiction towards that. So dopamine is the, and dopamine evolutionarily is, is was a good thing. It was evolutionarily dopamine was used to incentivize two life sustaining behaviors. Uh, the first was procreation. Uh, procreation releases dopamine. It feels good, so we kept the species alive. And also eating. Eating releases dopamine, and it also incentivized another uh, life-sustaining uh, activity. The digital has hijacked those experiences. Digital experiences raise dopamine levels fairly significantly in a way that other natural experiences don't, and for longer periods of time, by the way. So uh, my friend and colleague Andrew Doan talked about for example, in the video game industry, they spend billions of dollars, um, billions of dollars uh, making these experiences dop dopaminergic, as dopamine uh, activating as possible. Well, they take uh, beta testers, they'll take a beta testing adolescent and they'll strap a blood pressure gauge and galvanic skin responses to their fingertips. And if the game experience doesn't raise their blood pressure to 180 over 140, they go back and they tweak the game to make it more arousing more um, adrenaline surging, more dopaminergic. And what we know about adrenaline, is, or dopamine, as I mentioned, is it ties into addiction. And there was a study, and this is an older study. This is back in 1998. Dr. Cope did a study that looked at what raises our dopamine. And food can raise dopamine 50%. Sex uh, can raise dopamine 100%. And 
this is 1998. 1998 video games also were able to raise dopamine 100%, as much as a sexual experience. And now cocaine was about 300%. The difference between cocaine or a sexual experience and a video game, those of you who may have children who are gamers, is the length of exposure. So uh, a sexual experience typically is shorter lasting, unless you're sting. Um, But typically... (laughs) You'll have that dopamine spike, it'll peak, and then it'll level out. But gamers, I've worked with gamers who have played for two, three, four days in a row without sleep. So that dopamine arousal that, and that adrenaline arousal can go on for multiple days, and then you go through what's called an adrenal fatigue. Uh, it, it begins to look like... Um, PTSD, where people who have adrenal fatigue, who have been hyper-stimulated for too long, um, what does that look like in a classroom? It begins to look like ADHD. It begins to look like somebody who is mood dysregulated. It begins to look like someone who's sleep dysregulated. Um, there was an interesting brain imaging study that showed some of these effects on the frontal cortex of the brain. I like this study in particular at the 2011 Indiana uh, University Medical School because they did a pre- and post-fMRI brain imaging. And they took non-gamers, they took a a group of young men who were not gaming uh, enthusiasts, and then they made them play video games for 10 hours a week, and then they did MRIs two weeks later. And what they found was that in just two weeks, according to the lead researcher, um, certain frontal uh, brain regions were affected, same ones that control emotion and aggressive behavior, and it was the same parts of the prefrontal cortex that affect... um, that are affected by substance abuse. What we begin to see is that you have less activation, what was said earlier. What happens with chronic substance abuse and chronic screen time is the DGM, the dense gray matter of our prefrontal cortex, begins to shrink. So it's called a shrinkage of the DGM, less activation of a critical part of the brain that's responsible for executive functioning, impulse control, aggressive behavior, consequential thinking, All those things become compromised with too much screen time. Interestingly, I I was told about the study that really drilled home how powerful of a digital drug a screen experience can be. The U.S. military is using experiments with virtual reality as a form of analgesic. And so uh, burn victims who are coming back from combat who typically get given high doses of morphine so they can manage their wound care. If you're a burn victim, some of you may or may not know, the most painful part of being a burn victim is the daily debridlement. They have to take the bandages off and scrape off the dead skin. It's excruciating, and they get given high doses of morphine. What they found that if they were playing a game called Snow World, they didn't need any morphine. And what it looked like was this. That's a soldier getting his uh, burns treated while he's playing a game called Snow World. And by the way, Snow World looks like that. It's a fairly innocuous game with Paul Simon music playing in the background. And I interviewed for my book one of the pilot participants of this study. And they said to me, Dr. Cardaris, when they gave me the morphine, it still hurt like shit. But when I was playing Snow World, I felt nothing. So wonderful use of technology for pain management, but the question that begs asking is, if it's so powerful that burn victims don't experience pain, what's this doing to the brain of an eight-year-old? What's the longitudinal research that shows what effects this is having long-term? And this study just came out three weeks ago. It was a JAMA journal uh, 
American Medical Association's uh, pediatric study that looked at how screen time for pre-K students was affecting their cognitive and neural development, and not in a good way. It was definitely uh, not a good thing. So here's little Johnny playing his video games, and again, he's adrenaline aroused, and this affects his adrenal system in a way that's not very healthy. Uh, the HPA axis is the fight-or-flight response. We know that screen, uh, high screen usage is hyper-arousing, hyper-stimulating, and people go into this adrenal state of hyper-arousal, which is not very healthy because once a young person has their adrenal thermostat turned on high, it's very difficult to lower that. We know that screen time uh, kills the love of reading. I'm kind of jumping around a little bit because um, the time gods are letting me know that time is running short. Um, if the one most uh, impactful study about reading showed that reading competency at age seven and reading skill at age and love of reading at age 15 were the two biggest determinants of lifelong success. And yet we have now research that shows screen time kills reading or the love of reading. So we're essentially giving our young people something that is deleterious to their adulthood. We're killing reading for young children. Let's face it, reading doesn't stack up to screen time. Screen time, reading a book, oh, screen time, good stuff. So this is something that we're habituating our kids for. Social media, I'm going to kind of glide through some of these uh, significant studies that have shown what's called the Facebook depression effect. One particular study showed the more friends you have on Facebook, the higher the likelihood for clinical depression. We're not meant to be screen connected. We're meant to have face-to-face -face human interaction, as I mentioned before. Um, Sean Parker, the original pe president of Facebook, you know, he's had a crisis of conscience recently, and he's disavowed Facebook. He's not returning his $1.4 billion that he made from Facebook, but he's saying that people should get off of Facebook because God knows what it's doing to people's brains and to our, our ways of being a species, a social species. Holographic realities are, are uh, you know, I, I work with digital addiction clinically. I can't even tell you how horrible this is going to be. You have people who hate their lives because, let's face it, a lot of addiction is I don't like my life, I don't like how I feel, and I want to escape that feeling. So if I can do it through a substance, I will. But if I could push a button and escape my world through a digital reality, and now if it's an immersive holographic reality, why would I ever get off the couch? Why, you know, I was looking at that poor cow that was in a virtual reality headset. But we have young people that really don't like their lives. And if they can live a virtual life, that's a better alternative. They will. Um, we have young people that are getting hijacked uh, by extremist groups, uh, vulnerable. The low hanging fruit for extremist groups is the lonely white male who is on the, in front of a computer on the chat room like Chan 8 or gamers, uh, the FBI now is monitoring some of those sites because they know that they're actively recruiting that the empty, lost young person who might be vulnerable to that kind of messaging. I've worked with some of these young men. Uh, we Finally, we've talked about things like AI. Elon Musk has begun to warn us about AI. And, and the message was that we have this idea that AI might be a rational kind of Mr. Spock writ large, this sort of analytical, logical AI, but the genie that we're letting out of the bottle by some people's concerns might be an emotive, id-driven AI because the data points that's informing AI, if they're social media data points, if it's, it seems that the internet is our 
shadow and there's a dark side that's informing some of this. And this came out when uh, Microsoft formed an AI proto uh, prototype in 2016 called Tay. And within 24 hours, Tay started saying Hitler had the right idea. Um, so AI uh, can be problematic, whether it's coolly analytical or whether it's emotional, but we might be uh, inventing uh, our replacement species. And just a final word about AI, um, they... Supercomputers that play chess can calculate. These are calculating computers, not in, not learning computers. They can calculate 70 million moves per second. And they played an intelligent computer that can learn. This is uh, AlphaZero by Google that could only do 8,000 moves per second. And AlphaZero learned to play chess in the morning and beat the supercomputers by that afternoon 100 times in a row. Um, so the learning computers, are, they're coming. And, and the genie will not be easily put back into the bottle. We have formed the National Institute of Digital Health to uh, provide resources for schools, training for therapists, and um, these are some of the uh, places where I can be reached. But I think this is a significant global problem that we need to be aware of, that the water is boiling. Thank you. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Okay, our next speaker is um, Dolph Zenting, who is a pioneer IT entrepreneur from the Netherlands with a background in fiber optics, telecommunications, data mining, enterprise solutions, and artificial intelligence. Early in his career, he co-founded Sylogic, an international IT firm integrating artificial intelligence, machine learning, and database man management systems, sold eventually to Perot Systems, where he became a European director. Later, he worked for KPN, the largest Dutch telecommunications company, where he was responsible for IT research and development for new technology. He went on to found UNET, the, one of the first fiber optic companies in Europe. And his career took an unusual turn when he pursued the study of Chinese medicine and acupuncture and began seriously looking at the biological impacts of electromagnetic frequencies. For the past two decades, his focus, along with collaborator veterinarian Dr. Eric Larker and a team of scientists at Water and Light BV in the Netherlands, has been on deepening understanding in this area and has included research in biophotonics, water, light, and system physiology. Together, they have documented important new insights about the physiological effects of electromagnetic fields that are expected to be game-changing for the telecommunications industry. Today will be the first public presentation of the water and light findings, now being replicated by other scientists at universities in Europe, and also being shared with leaders of the world's wisdom traditions. Along with offering us a deeper understanding of how harm is occurring biologically to humans and to planetary biological systems, this new body of research is also, fortunately, pointing to new ways of creating profound healing for our polluted planet ways to clean up polluted bodies of water, to regenerate dead soil, 
to greatly enhance the vitality of food, to support our resiliency in the face of environmental assaults. And I am very personally inspired by Dolph, who is going to be demonstrating in a new, more holistic, more systemic way, the terrible um, mistake that society is making in blanketing our bodies and the planet in electromagnetic fields. Please welcome Dolph Santing from the Netherlands. Good afternoon. <clears throat> a speaker in the pause asked me what was uh, your opinion for the first two speakers. And uh, one thing that really struck me, and that was the fact that there is a big deny going on in this world. A big deny that this is taking place. You see that there is really a machinery going on that moves us forward. And if we don't take action in the coming period, then we have really a very serious problem. One of the things, and I'm going to talk on 4 and 5G, but I'm also going to talk upon what we do in total. Um, this is Silicon Valley, an area whereby information is a very key part of the economy. But let's, let's focus upon the world, the word information. It means that something is in a formation. There is something that has a formation. And we fill that with data, and we hope that the data is correct, and then you can do something. But we have forgotten something, forgotten something very, very serious. We ourselves are also an information source, constantly. And what is happening with our information system? And that was a very serious concern. So 12 years ago, a whole team of scientists and myself we started to do research in multiple areas. And we were wondering, what is our own information system? And after one year of deep research, we came to the conclusion that one of the missing links in our own system is that our own data and our own communication is done with an element that we hardly know of. And that element is water. That is a very critical element. And we started to change our research completely to water. And not only we did research, we really tried to build applications around it and see what, us, what is the effect of it. And that 12 years of adventure is now put in this presentation. So I want you to join me in this 12 years of research, and then we move forward. Because scientists <clears throat> over the world haven't got a clue what water is. I'll give you one example. If you freeze water, then you can stand on it. And it is on top of a liquid. You can stand on ice. But normally, when it is cold, something, something gets heavier, then it goes down. Water is doing the opposite. We still haven't got a clue what water is. So a lot of scientists, every year, there's a water conference in the world... And all these scientists are working together and see what water is. And we came to some very serious conclusions. And one of these conclusions is that water is a liquid crystal. Very important. A lot of you have seen the photos of Mr. Amoto, and that's not what I mean with this crystal form. It's more complex. 
because Omoto took a picture, he took out a crystal, and he could not repeat it. But anyway, the ideas of a crystal that was brought into the world. Water communicates with electromagnetic fields, and that is why 4 and 5G suddenly play a role in this. And I come back to this. Oh, sorry, too fast. Water absorbs electromagnetic fields. I'll give you one example. On the left side you see the sun, and on the right the moon. If it doesn't do so, if it doesn't absorb these electromagnetic fields, then this would be a frozen planet. But due to the fact that the sun is shining constantly on the oceans, these electromagnetic fields create a certain heat, and it creates a current through the oceans. You need the poles to cool off, and you need the heat as well. So there's a constant balance between them. The moon is doing the same. You know, you have the high tide, the low tide. Constantly, we work on that. And these are electromagnetic <coughs> fields. But there are multiple more electromagnetic fields. And we'll come to that. We measure, for instance, the sun. A lot of scientists can do, do that. That's very simple. But what you see here is the absorption of the sun. And you see here, there's nanometers. The sun comes in on this planet on 300 nanometers, and then it moves up, and it goes down at 950. And in between, you have the seven colors. Most of us can see seven colors. If you're colorblind, then you can't see them all. But these are the wavelengths of the colors. And very interesting is to see at the top, you see that at the same top, you see that it also communicates with calcium, iron, magnesium. So there is a constant connection between elements, chemical elements, and the sun and light. So this light, this electromagnetic wave, is communicating. And that is a part of our own information system. We are born and built to receive information with electromagnetic fields that are natural. This is what water does, constantly. When you look at a glass of water, you can look through it, but these are the movements of the atoms. And this is a language. This is not just something. These atoms are connected to each other. We call that a water bridge. And these bridges can form a certain structure. And then you have the left and the right structure. The right structure is what we call a coherent state. And Carl already showed you what it means. A coherent state is a very important state. With a minimum of energy, you get a maximum uh, capacity. On the left side, you create chaos. And chaos means that your communication system doesn't work anymore. And that is going to be a part of our story. Water in this world, H2O, as we know, is constantly under the influence of the elements, the sun, the moon, the cosmos, but also from the planet Earth. And it is built to work with us. Water is in balance due to these natural waveforms. And when water is in a coherent state, it works with what we call 
the fifth element. It works with a, with a specific field. And this is very important. Due to this structure, to this very elementary crystal structure, it has the ability to make contact with fields that we hardly know of, with quantum fields. And that is what we found out over the last few years. It is very important. And we lose that connectivity when we go to the left side, to the chaotic side. And now that's very important because you see already that certain satellites and our mobile phone can destroy these fields. And I'll show you the examples. Carl showed that we are water. Everybody says that we are 70% water. That is not really true because the reality is that we are 99% water molecule. That's a little bit more. Do you know the percentage of the ocean? That's 96. The rest is salt. We are more water than a cucumber. But you look better, that's for sure. <laughs> 70% is our body weight. That means that we are a walking water engine, more or less. Now, one of the things, because it is not only the communication with the electromagnetic fields from the telco industry, but there is also another field that also plays a role. And that is how we communicate with our brain system, with our guts. Nowadays, doctors all over the world do understand, and that is only for a few years, that there is a very strong relation between the two. The gut and the brain, we call the gut nowadays the second brain. And that is dependent upon the number of bacteria into your brains. But they are constantly working together, and they do it with this nerve center, nervous vagus. If there is no coherent field in this area, you have a serious problem. Normally, you have around 1,200 types of bacteria in your intestine. Yesterday, Carl told me that in the U.S., it's the lowest rate in the world, maybe four to 500. And that has a deep impact also on depression, because why is it so important? Because the microbiome creates your hormone systems and your resistance. So, if you have a problem in your brain, then you also get a problem in your intestine. So, if people are getting addicted here, they have a problem there as well. They get sick total, the whole resistance moving away. And vice versa as well. If our food remains as bad as it is now, they have another problem that as well. Then the addiction is also... Yeah, much easier there. What we hardly know is that those microbiome, those bacteria, we find them back into the soil. Most of those bacteria can be found in the soil and in the oceans and in any animal. As a matter of fact, a lot of our DNA communicates with it. It's very important. So if we are going to destroy the soil, then we are going to destroy our microbiome, and that has an effect as well. And this is what we do at the moment. Due to our sometimes very aggressive food production, 
we, do, we put toxins in it, and the water is going down through the soil. It takes the vibration of the chemicals, and it goes into the groundwater, and then we start to drink it. And that is taking place. In the U.S., there is something else going on, because you are drilling deep, and you want to get oil out of the ground, and you put chemicals into the, into the ground. Nobody has a clue what the effect is going to be in the near future upon that as well. So what we are doing at the moment is that our whole brain system, our whole resistance in the plants, in the soil, in the water, and in the air, if we are going to work with satellites, is completely disturbed, completely What we did, and it was after many years of research, we were looking to water. Because what we found, that there is hardly any normal coherent water in the world anymore. As a matter of fact, you can't find it in the ocean anymore. Only in certain places there is a certain stability. Most of the rivers in the world are polluted nowadays. And the rivers, they bring in the water to the ocean. So at the end of the day, the oceans, they get more and more polluted. That has to do with many things, but the uh, toxins in the agriculture definitely play a role in that as well. We were able to bring back the water to a certain coherent state, and it remains there coherent, because a lot of people come with coherent water and they create vortexes, and yes, it does something, absolutely, but it doesn't remain there. And it was very easy testing for us because we used it 3 and 4G. And this, always when we had water from a river and we went all over the world, from Greenland to the Himalayas to the US to Japan, we took that water and we put it under the pressure with antennas for 3 or 4G. And within two minutes, it was gone. And we were able to bring back the water in such a state that it had a certain stability. I'm going to show you now what that stability has to offer. Left is fungi in the soil. In the soil, you must have a certain fungi because we have destroyed that. In a very short period, the coherent water brought back the fungi. But this was a very critical one. And now you probably understand what is going on. On the right top, with biophotons, we measured wheat seeds for multiple months. On the right side, you see that. You see the seed coming out with two roots, one going up, going down. And we measured constantly the biophotons. And what happened, we got a red line and a blue line. And we didn't know the difference. Well, as a good data miner, you're going to look to data and other things. And then we found another wave that looked very similar. And that was the yellow wave. And this wave was the moon cycle. So with coherent water, you bring back the complete cycle of the moon into the water. And that is where it is made for. Because you are water. That means that your moon also responds in your body as well. Then we did another test. And Carl mentioned already something about the microbiome, but also upon the following, what the following test will be going to do. We did a lot of tests here with the tomatoes in the greenhouse. And we did a test by an external company. And we looked to the number of mitochondria. Carl said that the mitochondria, 
They are the energy builders in every cell. In every cell in your body, there are mitochondria, between 1,000 to 2,000 in one cell, yes. And what we found is that they are probably the most basic bacteria that was ever created on this world, probably one of the very first bacteria. They are in your cells, still there. And what we found out is that this mitochondria creates ATP, and that is your energy level. When you get older, your ATP is going down, yes, dramatically. And it has to do with the number of mitochondria. You cannot swallow them. You cannot take a pill. That is what pharmacy would love to do, but you can't do that. No, they have to grow themselves by modern nature. And what we found is that when you use normal water or coherent water, then suddenly the cells started to respond to it. And here on the right side, you see that we did it on carrots. And every year, the number of ATP increased. But what we also did, we did this... Oh, I missed something. I hope that... Oh, something was taken out. But we did the same with the tomatoes. You saw the tomato test. And what we noticed is that when you use coherent water, it increased the number of mitochondria, remained there, and they increased compared with normal water to a factor of 40%. And that has to do also with aging. So when you... Aging means also that your number of mitochondria are going down. And that means that water has an effect on aging. The, so the quality of the crystal structure responds to Mother Nature and the bacteria and the soil, and that is how it affects us all. We also did a test on polluted soil, and within three, four months, we noticed that there was a very serious reaction on polluted soil as well. And here you see, for instance, in the middle, you see biophotons. And this picture was, for me, amazing. When I went home <laughs> ten years ago, I thought, I know absolutely nothing in the middle, you see wheat seeds in the Petri dish. And the story starts when you give it water, and it is 20, or, yeah, 20 centimeters, that is uh, seven, seven inch, under the soil. And suddenly, we notice that it is starting to give light, and it communicates. And when you see in the middle, you see the communication of the light. You see it glowing up and down. It communicates with water. So when you walk on the soil... There is a whole communication system. And we are part of that communication system as well. And that was for me very, very serious. We also noticed that when you give it the right water, the number and the quality of the seeds increase every year by 30%. Then we did something else. There was a polluted ditch. And here we did something completely new last year. Here you see the pollution into the water. And below you see that it was full of chaotic atoms. For seven days, 24 hours, we measured it with very specific sensors that we built together with a team that also worked for NASA. And we put it in a data center. And what we saw, and you see here the right, the two lines, that is very interesting. Because this is how water should be. I'm going to tell you now in detail what it does, and then you also start to understand the effect of 4 and 5G later on. This is the energy level on plants on polluted water. Then we took our coherent water. 
This is the energy level of normal water. But do you see the beautiful response up and down? It is exactly the same. And that is what water should be. See it like a yin-yang or plus-minus. But the plus is that it receives energy from electromagnetic fields and then it gives it to the soil and to the roots. And then you start to eat that fruit later on. What we noticed was a shock for us because we started to measure rainwater and mineral water at the moment. <coughs> Sorry. And this was the effect. Then we did something very unusual. Nobody knows how we did it. But we transported a part of this coherent state remote to the polluted water. And this is how the water... Resp- so we put the full spectrum, and you see already here in the drawing, that it became less chaotic, and this was the outcome. So the polluted water started to restore itself. First, it started to get the energy above, and later on, during the week, the energy went down, and then it came back in balance. That is very important. Then we did a test, a very... important test with a German brick manufacturer two weeks ago. And we used normal water, mineral water, and we made it also coherent. And here you see the outcome of it. This is the control sample. And it weighed 1.4 kilograms. Then we took the coherent water. 1.2 kilograms. And it weighed 1.2 kilograms. So from 1.4 to 1.2, with the same water, only we made it coherent. The Dutch government research institute last week did the same sample on uh, on another brick and on concrete, and they could save 10% water. So you see that when we also as humans, are getting out of a coherent state. You need a lot of water, but the water is not correct anymore. Your cells need the right type of water. You need a certain coherent structure. And we asked an external organization if this test was done correct. Well, you can read it in. And this is what should happen. We have to go back to a complete normal cycle that includes the water, includes the soil, includes the plants and the eater. And now I'm going to talk with you about the network. First of all, I'm going to show you something that the Russians did some years ago. Some, some <coughs> Russian researchers put some fishes in water. That's phase one. And you see the fishes swimming around. And they put in an electromagnetic field, a man-made electromagnetic field into this water. And what happened is they saw a change in the skin and they saw a change in the DNA. And the third phase was a behavioral change. Well, we are all quite familiar with that because now we see that constantly. (laughs) And we can see it over here. And there. And there. And there. The good news for these people is they wake up now. (laughs) 
but I hope it also happens with humanity. Because this is what's happening. We started with 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, and this. Constantly. But this is not it. This is only the outside antennas. Because the reality is that we move to the inward antenna. So we have this. And it will move to 1.5 billion. Estimate is it will move up to 200 billion in 10 to 15 years. And each of them is a different frequency. Yes? And the good news is that you have neighbors. (laughs) And then you step into your car, electronic car. You sit on a big battery. Okay, we move on. Because... This can become our future. You have the normal natural waves, and we are going to interfere with other waves. And nobody has a clue what it means. But we ignore it. Because when you go to politicians now, they always come up and tell you, well, we have seen so many reports, it's safe. It's safe. So here's the test. This is 4G, and this is a tower, and you will see these towers all over the world. And at a certain level, uh, because this is the noise it makes constantly. You understand the bees Carl was talking about? Okay. We come back to the water and to the plants, and we did some thing new. This is the energy level of a plant. This is a plant who gets sick, and this is a plant who's dying. It's not only for the plant, it works the same for us. So we did a test in a greenhouse, and we repeated the test, and we repeated the test, and I finished the test last week, and again, the same results. And we took rainwater, because rainwater is under the influence of all those fantastic electromagnetic fields. And we measured it constantly, seven days. And here you see fantastic waves. Now we did the following. We put an antenna, because we have a telco team, and we put an antenna into the water. And then you hear, for one hour, only... Can you imagine? One hour. Okay. And then we use this water and we start to measure it. So it was there for one week. And then we start to measure it for 20 to 30 days, constantly. So only one hour. And this is what happened. The energy level went back to zero. The whole time frame. The whole time frame. Then we did the same with coherent water. It also got a hit, but it came back. This was very interesting for us. Because you see that most of the waters in the world are rainwater, mineral water, is already under big pressure. And if we move to increase the frequencies with a factor of 10 to 100, can you imagine what this is going to do with this planet? So we did another test 
and we finished the test a few days ago. We have we measured the brain activity. The yellow line is the standard activity. When you look totally below, you see delta, theta, alpha, beta, and for every brain researcher, especially for Nick, this is quite familiar. The brains work on multiple levels. Yes? And when you're going to sleep and you have a deep sleep, you move more to delta and theta. And when you're very active, you move to the other area. And it is between 0 and 40, 50 hertz. And we started to measure a twin. And we looked at the colors. The green color is good. The blue and the red is no good. Then you have a problem in your brain. This is measured on 19 points into your brain. And what we notice is that when the twin was starting to drink normal water, nothing happened. That is below. And when they started to drink coherent water, the brain within 10 minutes responded to green. And they thought, okay, but these twins are healthy. And by the way, two weeks later, we turned it around, the same effect, but then on the other person. So we said, let's do it different this time. And we took an Alzheimer patient. Very unfortunate in my family, one person has Alzheimer, and she said, if I can help with research, let's do it. You can see here the red area. Yellow and green is a certain stability. Then we gave her a two-minute phone call. You see, now almost everything is almost completely red. And what people are saying is, yes, these wavelengths are not able to go through the body. It's not like an x-ray. No, no, they keep to the surface and only has to do with heat. It's crazy. It has to do with water. And you have water. Only two minutes, so it has nothing to do with heat. Then we gave the person water, coherent water. Bang, it came back. (coughs) Very interesting, you see that the Alzheimer patient... The phone call was in the very low bandwidth. So the Alzheimer is a disease increasing power. So the person became more vulnerable. Then we did another test on a student. Looks very healthy, quite green, and two minutes. You see, more red. What we noticed with the telephone is that from person to person, because we did a multiple test, I give you only two examples, we, did, we tested a lot of people, all of them responded to the mobile phone, all of them. And some to the front, to, to the back, it, depend, it was very dependent upon the person itself. Yes. And here you see again, after drinking the water. So what's happening now is that if we are going to influence this planet with all these man-made electromagnetic fields, and we continue with denying that it can be harmful, then we have created a very big problem because this is definitely harmful. Here you see the outcome of the student. By her, the phone call was in a different part of the brain. So not everybody had the same problem in delta or theta. It depended from person to person. But each of them had a specific reaction. The conclusion. 
All life is dependent on electromagnetic waves. The fact that we are standing here, that I communicate with you, that you can hear me, has everything, everything to do with electromagnetic waves. But we are going to influence it now. And water is the communicator. It communicates constantly with these fields. And we have to protect it. And the energetic pollution has a very deep negative effect on us. And you can cleanse the water chemically, but then you still see that there is a chaotic rhythm going on. So there is something else you have to do as well. We are losing the coherent, coherence field in this water all over the world. And this structure of the atoms is something new. You could see already to the bricks how an incredible effect it has. Bricks respond within 24 hours on water. We saved 20% on that in weight, yes. So then you can see how important it is. And this is what we wanted to show you. Electromagnetic fields are a political role. And it is our responsibility to protect this planet against negative man-made electromagnetic fields. Thank you for listening. Then now we're going to have a, some Q and A. If every Carl and Nick, you could come up, and um, we'll start with this. We'll start with this one. I am 12 years old. What does today's lecture mean for my generation in 30 years? Are, and also, are there nutraceutical shielding or other counters to this radioactive bombardment? So, what does today's lecture mean for my generation in 30 years? Carl, do you want to start? Well, I hope that. A 12-year-old child asking this question, first of all, is already to be appreciated because such a child is unusual. What I would say to such a 12-year-old is we have created something that we did not understand was have such broadband and, and broad-spectrum effects on you that might affect you your whole life. And please begin to use any device that you use with great respect, in the same way as when I was growing up, we respected uh, radiation from nuclear power plants and other things. This is very long-term potentially affecting you. The long-term effects have not been studied sufficiently, and therefore you have to use precaution, and you have to understand that it will affect this technology, the water in your body, since you're mostly water molecules. It will affect how your brain functions. It will affect your future. And you as children, if you do not wake up to this, may not have the future in the same way we as children were worried about nuclear war and life on this planet ceasing. So thank you for studying this. Thank you for sharing this with your friends. Thank you for opening your heart to the natural beauty of the world. And please use the device sparingly. There's other ways to learn and celebrate life. Okay, so could we have each of the other panelists also speak to the 12-year-old's question? Thank you, Noah, for the question. Uh, I uh, agree fully with uh, what uh, Carl is saying. What uh, what we have seen here is that um, we have a certain responsibility, and the tests that we have done till now are based upon an old paradigm. We have to go much deeper 
in a way we, we look to this. And uh, also the testing done in many laboratories is in that respect missing certain links. And uh, I hope that we can increase the quality of these testings and we get a broader aspect of it. That is, uh, for me, very important because we will influence next generations dramatically if we don't do it soon. Yeah, so I often uh, look through the lens of uh, 12-year-olds because I have 12-year-old twin boys, and so I do ask myself, what's their world going to look like as they get older? So it's a, it's, I've got skin in the game and a clear and present concern about what world they're growing up in. So, you know, we've heard a lot about the radiation effects and the uh, neurological impacts. And uh, it depends what day you ask me. There are days that I'm pretty pessimistic about this. There are days that I feel that I, I, I feel sorry for young children and teenagers that they're not going to have the world that we've had. They're not going to have, they're not going to be the species that we were. Um, and, and on my brighter days, I'm optimistic that there's some grassroots awakening and that, that people can pump the brakes on this mad dash with uh, towards hubris and uh, unfettered technological growth that's going to consume us. So um, I think the jury is out. I think we're at, we are at a pivotal crossroads, and I think the next four to five years will be critical in terms of what things are going to look like in 20 to 30 years. So um, where does one get coherent water? Dolph, could you talk about uh, where does one get the coherent water? What are your plans for this? Uh, we are planning to bring it uh, into the world this year. We, we have started already in Europe and India, and we want to bring it to Canada and the U.S. as the next step. And we want to bring this technology to the right people and not give it into the hands of those who are going to misuse it, but give it in the right hands. Um, let's see. Um, uh, how do we learn more about, doc, uh, about Dolph Zenting's research? Uh, until now, we haven't published anything because the whole research was uh, paid by ourselves. It was an incredible amount of money. For the last 12 years, we uh, spent really multi-millions of dollars to it. And we kept all this information for ourselves, and now the last two years we asked the external organizations to do the tests, and then we publish them, and we will publish them soon on our website. That will take place in the coming weeks, months, and then we want to connect ourselves to other organizations, and we want to hand them over our reports and discuss with them the outcomes of it. I have become EHS due to extremely high and prolonged radiation from cell phone antenna on roof of my apartment where I've lived for 29 years. Are there any legal cases, precedents? I must move and recover, seeking legal help to have costs paid, moving, etc. Um, so we're not really giving it legal advice today, but there are some lawyers in the, in the, um, in the uh, community here. We've got Jim Turner from the, uh, Washington, D.C., who's a head of National Institute for Science, Law, and Public Policy. Uh, Julian Gresser from Santa Barbara, if you raise your hand, Julian. Um, and any other lawyers in here that are addressing this issue? Um, uh, there, are, there's, there are others in, like Harry Lehman in, in the Bay Area. Um, okay. Um, 
In the water presentation, how close was the phone to the head? Uh, no more. Against the air for two minutes. No more. Normal phone call, no emotional phone call. It was just voicemail. Depending who was on the voicemail, of course, but it was a normal uh, normal phone call. Uh, this one looks like it's for uh, Nick Carderas. How does streaming videos such as Netflix on Amazon Fire on a smart TV affect us? Um, if the Amazon Fire is wired to the Ethernet, how does it affect us? Well, I think those are two different questions. I mean, so we've I've treated uh, clinically clients who their digital drug of choice was Netflix binge watching, um, and, and literally that was a significant problem. Where, where it was, I treated one young man who had such a low core identity that he would lose himself in the narrative of whatever uh, content he was viewing over multiple hours and days, uh, and so. Binge watching is the uh, the crack of uh, let's call it television viewing in terms of its propensity to more the next episode the next episode it really activates our brains in a way that really is very compulsive forming and um, the Ethernet I guess just obviously increases the radiation effect but the content itself is is presented to us in a format that is very habit forming uh, and I think that's what we're seeing we're seeing we're going away from episodic. You know, prior generations of uh, media content were episodic, and now we're seeing sort of narrative arcs that require, or, you know, Game of Thrones, binge-watching. People will talk about binge-watching a series in, over the course of 48 hours or 24 hours, and that's that's driving the media companies today to create that type of content that is uh, all-consuming. And uh, uh, can I just add that if you do have a, a TV, whatever, smart TV, which are all present now, please hardwire it. You know, do not use the wireless in your house to stream everything to because wherever you are in proximity to the router, especially, you'll be more affected. Um, this question, um, Dr. Havas, um, how does the plant song change with EMF exposure? Can we hear it? And I can just answer for that, that I know that she's going to be doing that that research, and we'll, we'll be hearing it in the future. Then did virtual reality help milk production in the cows or not? And and that is what it, what we know is that it has reduced the anxiety in the cows, and they're hoping it's going to improve milk production. Um, this one would be for um, Dr. Um, Merritt. When, uh, when did uh, Dr. Belpalm draw blood for biomarkers in EHS and MCS? And do, do, the, do the results change or improve with EMF and chemical reduction? Do the biomarkers normalize after EMF reduction? Yeah, that's a great question. Because he saw the correlation between multiple chemical sensitivity, this is where people are so allergic to exhaust fumes and perfumes and all these kind of things. Uh, they have a very much an overlap spectrum, and we see this a lot because everybody has chemicals in their body. It's even like over 200 chemicals in cord blood of mothers giving birth to babies when they studied this. So we all have chemicals. The question is, is it causing a problem? And I can definitely tell you that if you lower the heavy metals, the chemical constituents of the body, the, the pollution, people can recover. But you have to also remove people from the environment. Uh, brain blood flow comes back in France when uh, Dr. Balpam uh, sent people into areas like where there's radio telescopes where there is very little electromagnetic pollution. People can recover the cerebral circulation and so on. So there is hope. 
but you have to see that there's an overlap. The markers do change over time, but the longer you've been exposed, the more the brain has become sensitized, the harder it becomes. And that's why the Germans often call it digital dementia. It's really a form of dementia, and that's why we see all these neurological problems and what people die from nowadays. Heart disease, cancer rates have gone down, even though they're big killers. But neurological diseases are skyrocketing, and that's what people really care about if they have want to live a long time. So we have a lot of questions here about um, what can we do in our communities to affect change. And in a minute, I'm going to invite one of the local activists, Paul McGavin. Are you here? Great. If you would sort of move this way as we uh, get ready for you, I'm going to invite him to give us, bring us up to date. Um, this is for Dolph Zenting. What can we as non-scientists do to make water coherent? Is there, is there a natural process? And also, um, could you talk about the difference between um, the coherent water that you've created and other people that are creating um, so-called structured water? The, is it the same, or is yours different? No, it's definitely different. Uh, the water we made it takes almost a year before it is completely back in a natural state. And then we have the ability to copy it. Most of the other... Uh, waters, they use machines, crystals, minerals, or most of the people use crystals, by the way, or they use vortexes. And yes, it has an effect. But what I told you already in the presentation is that the effect is gone within a few minutes, max a few hours, and if you put it under pressure of electromagnetic waves, then it is gone within a second. So it is definitely different. The water that we have tested and you uh, could see it as the outcome of the 5G test that came back. So the, the energy level went down, but when we stopped, it immediately came back. So it is absolutely completely different. Okay. Um, this would be for Carl. Can you please elaborate on peroxynitrite, chemical structure, known effects, which tissues, what is the source of peroxynitrite? This is... Uh yeah, there there are several free radicals. Peroxynitrite is one of them. Um, it's re, you know it's related to the internal structure of the cell. It's one of the most common ones it's found, but it's not the only free radical. Free radicals are basically where there's unpaired electrons that then destroy um, the cell membranes. Lipid peroxidation. It's like rusting. I always tell my patients when you have too many free radicals, and rather than focusing on just one. That's just one that's been studied, and Martin Paul has talked about it a lot. It's it's really part of the cascade that's also involved with these voltage-gated calcium channels that are in the brain, but we also have sodium channels, potassium channels, but calcium is the first messenger in the brain and so forth, so that's why it's important. And so we can test antioxidants levels in a simple urine test, something like uh, 2-deoxy... Um, well, 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine, which is uh, a chemical that shows how much oxidative stress your body is under. We do that test routinely in the cell, and so we know how much oxidative stress you have. And then you have to take nutritional things and others. I'm very hopeful that that water will also be helpful here. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say one thing to the question about what we can do, because in a minute when Paul talks about this, um, in Santa Cruz, where... I live near. Um, we are having an ordinance now for the city to uh, essentially make 
everybody aware where a new antenna is going up so that they can then start to be informed. And if they have health or other concerns or electrically hypersensitive, they can immediately contact um, the uh, part of the government, the city government. And then, uh, as they're doing it in Australia, uh, people with uh, under the Americans with Disability Act or under the Fair Housing Authority, FHA, you can stop this. They've done that in Australia. Doctors are starting to get aware of this, and you must be protected in your homes. So if an antenna is planned to go up, you can then start to intervene. And this is where we need doctors and lawyers and the government working together. But we're starting such an ordinance so that they don't go closer to it than a certain distance to the home, and we hope that's passed very soon now. And the question that comes up after hearing um, the presentation today by um, Dolph Santing is, are, are the efforts that we're making adequate? Um, you know, so you have a setback maybe of so many hundred feet from a, um, an antenna, or in, in our own homes we are remediating, we're trying to minimize these exposures, but we're still very much exposed and still affecting the water. So I'm just wondering, in light of that, um, what what can people do to uh, what can we do? What can you do with your water to um, to help um, build the resilience and um, until we can affect the changes that are needed, which is to stop this whole trajectory and go back to the safer, hardwired options for the at least the internet uh, <coughs> access networks. Well, the very first step is that we have to stop to deny this. Otherwise, the industry moves on. And there is uh, also a political reason for a lot of politicians to move on. You see certain countries in the world that loves to move on to 5G as soon as possible. So the only thing I can imagine is that we have to do our research over again and uh, show that it has an impact, and then we have to work on a solution. We have the skills. I know we have the skills, but we have to do it soon. And I cannot tell you now that we have all the solutions. I hope anyway that we do not send out forty to 50,000 satellites, because how do you get them out of the air? How do you get them? How do you get them back? I mean, this is really crazy. And I hope that we can stop that anyway, because then we have complete. This is completely different. If you have something beaming as radiation from the top to the bottom, or you have some antennas on the floor, that's really different. So I hope we can stop anyway with the satellites, and then we can work t- technology-wise on the second level. Okay, and we're going to ask one more question for Dr. Cardaras. Um, what advice do you have for parents today? I think we have a significant voice in terms of being able to create some pushback. Um, you know, again, I'm reminded of the fact that these are significant physical, medical, societal impacts are happening to us, and many of us are addicted or sedated. You know, we're a sedated populace, or we're a distracted populace right now. And in addiction psychology, there's a there's an old axiom that an addicted populace is an easily controlled populace. And, you know, we know this, this goes back to the times of American slavery. American slaves were given a bottle of moonshine every Saturday because it was this idea that if you were drunk and sedated, you were not going to be able to raise your head up and be aware of what was happening. Nor were you 
would you be able to change your situation? So I think first and foremost, we have to be aware of the fact that we've been lulled and sedated by, let's call it the hypnotic devices that have made us under-aware of some of the realities that we've heard on stage here. And I think parents have a significant role in being able to push back against um, one of the one of the um, one of the digital drug dealers. One of the most uh, important digital drug dealers are the school systems, and the schools have been have drank the Kool Aid on screen time, and and so they're they're hypnotizing our children with. And that, by the way, this and I've studied this for 15 years. There's not one research study that shows the efficacy of screen time in schools and better educational outcomes. And yet that Kool-Aid has been drank. Those initiatives, uh, billion, multi-billion dollar initiatives, you know, uh, ed tech, education technology is a $60 billion a year industry right now and without one research study to back it up. And what they're doing is they're priming our children for impulsivity, for sedation, for addiction. And so our children will be under aware of these larger issues that we're discussing. So parents are beginning to wake up that they are the uh, stakeholders of their school districts. And I've had, I've worked with a variety of parent organizations that have pushed back against the schools because you could be the most tech cautious family that you can be. But if the environment is toxic or your school is being um, uh, inundated by screen time, wired or otherwise, you know, one to one initiatives in schools, parents have fought back against that. Uh, pump the brakes on how young children are with with being given screens. It used to be where I came from in New York that it was high school, and then there was eighth grade, then there was seventh grade, then it was fifth grade, and now it's third grade, now it's first grade, now it's kindergarten. Um, those initiatives have to be pushed back. And schools are the you know we are the stakeholders of public schools, and so if we can organize, and I have uh, you know there's a there was a mother in Maryland who created an organization, and she got a legislator involved, and she limited, single-handedly, she created legislation and a limited screen time in schools based on OSHA, uh, public safety office guidelines based on ocular effects. She said there were, from the 1990s, there were guidelines for office workers only being able to be on screens for a certain amount of time just based on the ocular impacts. And so if it was good enough for office workers in the 1990s, why are there no limits on uh, screen times for children? And so she used that as as the tip of the spear to create legislation in Maryland for Maryland schools. Uh, So one parent with... with, with, uh, with passion and motivation, was able to impact a whole state. So we can do things. We can organize and push back. We don't have to allow this to happen. We don't have to go quietly into the night while this happens to us. So now I'd like to introduce um, Paul McGavin. Paul, there you are. And can we turn on the podium mic, please? Thank you very much, Paul. You're welcome. Paul is a scientist for Wired Technology and has been a very active force in you know in uh, fighting the antennas in in, the Mar- in Marin right and a lot of other places so I just want to say thank you very much for a great program we just loved all the great information you've been doing this for so long Camilla I remember watching the first videos back in 2010 and now it's 2019 and they get better and better every year and so we have great information here <laughs> Great information here, but we got to turn that into action, and that's what I'm all about. So I'm going to steal a line from George Goebel. You ever feel like the whole world is a tuxedo and you're a pair of brown shoes? Well, that's me, okay? i got a site called Scientist for Wired Technology, but I'm not a scientist. I read a lot of science, 
I report on science, and my goodness, we're getting some good results using advocacy based on that science. There's really two websites. One is mystreetmychoice.com. That's the on-ramp where all the cities are gathering to compare strategies of how they can actually return local control to their community and figure out the best way to integrate broadband into their town. What's the right mix of fiber optic? What's the right mix of some wireless but not being overrun by wireless? Scientists for Wired Technology is more like an encyclopedia, and it tells you exactly all the best strategies and ways that you can actually get effective ordinances done, Okay. First thing I want to note is that we are uh, actually in a toxic environment right here, okay? So these are two great meters, not very expensive. RF Explorer, under $300, and this one is about $400. That's a safe and sound Pro 2. But we got 20,000 microwatts per square meter, and it's all the range, the panoply of frequencies. We got 817 and 850 and 900 and 1900, and we are getting inundated right here in San Francisco because San Francisco is one of the most toxic urban environments I have encountered. And we actually have to get this fixed, and we are right in the mix right now. San Francisco is one of the few cities that passed a precautionary principle back in 2003. It means that every policy has to go past the San Francisco Department of Health. They get to vote on it. And they, at this time, right now, this week, this day, about to update their recommendation from some ridiculous memo from 2010 to something that should reflect the science of 2019. What I would like to invite each of you to do tomorrow is to get that video that you got right here and walk with me into Dr. Thomas Aragon's office and tell him personally exactly how he should change that memo based on the excellent information that you have compiled. Here's a man who's very well-meaning, great guy. You can read up on his blog. He's a really nice guy. He's busy. He's got bosses. He's got multiple agendas. He's got city attorneys to deal with. He has a chance to do something seminal this week or not. This is where we are in San Francisco. There are over 400 small cells installed in San Francisco. It's a dense city. These antennas go 6 to 12 feet from homes. It's second, third, four-story buildings. These antennas are literally outside of the bedrooms of the children. We have informed Dr. Thomas Aragon that is a condition of child endangerment. As an MD, he must report that condition. This was put into the San Francisco public record back on October 22nd when I first met with him and I spoke to the Board of Supervisors. We're not going to go quietly into the night. This is not what we need to do. We need to return local control to the people and the residents of the towns where they can weigh in and say, what do we need? And here's the good news. We never thought it would happen, but we have some real all-stars on our team right now, and they live in Washington, D.C., and they are the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judges. And I'm telling you, we should have the way for these guys, okay? They are doing a great job for us right now. They are so exasperated by this FCC, this Trump FCC, they are slapping them silly right now. You read these decisions, and the FCC is becoming a serial loser in the courts. And we've had two great decisions right now that we could take advantage of. Number one, August 19th. They, the, the industry is trying to say, oh, these small cells, 800,000 of them, no big deal. They're the size of a pizza box. Don't worry. Judges didn't buy it, not one second. Excuse me? How much power is coming out of these things? Huh. 
Yeah, that's not small. How many? 800,000? How many do we have now? 300,000? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's nothing. That's not nothing. That's something. Tell you what. We're going to vacate that portion of the order, and we're going to actually make you go back to square one, and you're going to have to actually do environmental review on this whole rollout program. That's what they said. That's exactly what you need to tell every single city and say, until we have specific rules for this class, then we need to actually shut it down. Okay. We need to stop. We have to close. I'm really sorry. Oh, my goodness. I told them three minutes. The most important information gets shut down. <laughs> There's two other decisions to talk about. There are lawsuits. People need funding. There's great stuff going on, folks. So thank you. Thank you very much, Paul. And be in touch with Paul. If, if he can help you locally. Um, and I, I just want to say one other question was, uh, is there going to be a video of this presentation? Yes, we're filming it. It should be ready sometime next week um, on electromagnetichealth.org. And um, so thank you all for coming. Really appreciate the audience. And thank you to our panelists. So I am Bill Grant, uh, co-chair of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and chair of this program. We thank Carl Merritt, Nicholas Cardaris, Dolph uh, Zantania, and Camilla Reese, and Paul McGowan for their comments here today. We also thank our audiences here, as well as those listening to this recording, and now this meeting in the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating more than 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. <laughs>